Welcome to Tech London, a show featuring interviews with London's top creative entrepreneurs, startups, investors, design agencies, internet marketers, and freelancers that make up the Tech London online community, which mostly lives on the Slack instant messaging platform. We rotate through both hosts and guests for these interviews, so you have the chance to hear from multiple perspectives on London's tech scene. So welcome back to the Tech London podcast. Uh, Jonathan Bailey-Strong here, founder of Tech London, with uh, Cyril Luterod. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Cyril. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here on Tech London. Absolutely. So, Cyril, you're the founder of uh, Zoe, which is a startup you're working on, which is at the intersection between biology and technology, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Love to hear a bit more about um, your startup and and uh, what led you here. What was your journey on the way? No, definitely. I'll give you a brief intro on, on Zoe and then tell you more about how we kind of got to here. So mm-hmm. Zoe specifically is, is kind of interesting because here at Zoe, we're, we're, we're at the edge of specifically connecting biology and technology intersection. Um, and what we seek to explore is the symbiosis of man's and, man and machine, um, mainly from the standpoint of... As we know, the pandemic has affected the whole world and affected our livelihood. Um, and we're starting to see a lot more trends and a lot more specifically people interested in health and how to enable health and what are these key enablers and how can we improve longevity of life. So what kind of led me here was that earlier this year, um, sometime in, in January, um, what ended up happening was I transitioned on my previous startup, which was Neurobotics. Um, and the intriguing part about that was as I transitioned out, I joined Entrepreneur First. And for those who don't know, Entrepreneur First is this talent accelerator that finds the best and greatest minds across the UK and Europe to join and build a billion-dollar visionary startup. Um, and you have people that are different domains, specifically that tech edges, people that catalyst, people from all different walks of life in different areas um, in the context of potentially building a unicorn or a really large company. Um, and what, what, what happened in that program was that I was able to connect with multiple people. And then the, the value prop of EF is that find as many people as you want it, and then meet together with them, break up, form new teams, and so on and so forth. So it's really great if you want to try out an idea or something like that. So I was able to try all these ideas and so on and so forth. Um, and then went through the program. And um, at the end of it, I came out specifically with a product called Zoe. Um, and Zoe was kind of the birth of trying multitude ideas and refining through the EF program. Um, and initially, we started with something simple where we were taking CT scans and x-rays, um, and we are basically trying to detect the likelihood of COVID. And that was kind of like a simple saying, if we can get this thing working or this proof point working, there might be a situation, there might be something traction, t- something tangential here where we can get traction from. So we started getting all these x-ray and CT scan data and all these different data points and so on and so forth. Um, and the interesting thing was that uh, we realized that the value add wasn't specifically detecting COVID with x-ray and CT scans because there's only a 3 or 4% difference versus a radiologist. And the value add was that specifically it was automated workflow. How do we save time? How do we reduce costs? How do we improve the annotation? How do we specifically take what we have from an existing standpoint to the ability where we can now say, hey, this is a simple way to screen or triage for highly infectious diseases and other things there. So that's how kind of Zoe kind of came to being um, through this journey over the last three or four months during pandemic. So this was kind of created out of out of out of adversity. It, it was kind of like true testament to, to the impact we're creating here on Zoe. Yeah, can I ask you? So that that's quite interesting 
uh, was it whilst you were going through the program and you were still sort of pre-idea that uh, COVID hit and you came up with this or or was the pandemic ongoing prior to that or how, how did that work? Curious. Yeah, I know. Great question. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, the intriguing part about that is that specifically in that context was I kind of like was on the fence of like specifically what am I going to do next? And then when I joined EF, um, a week before, actually a day before the launch of the program, lockdown mm-hmm. happened and they were freaking out. What are you going to do? Is this going to be like, we need to connect to founders. We need to connect to people uh, um, physically. There's no way you can phone, phone, uh, form a team with someone virtually. That's going to be out of the world. But there are some teams on EF that did form virtually and they never met till after they got funding, which is a crazy story. Yeah. Um, but, but that being said, the interesting part was that um, so we were like, what are we going to do? Um, so it was kind of like that kind of core specifically problem and that kind of core specifically world crushing, kind of like everything falling down, kind of inspired us and kind of gave us that kind of like awe and say, what can we do to change this? What can we do to create an impact? So it was during the pandemic or like halfway through lockdown or, or midweek lockdown, first week of lockdown that we said, why don't we create something related to COVID? Because I've been following COVID since December and so on and so forth. And a lot of people from China and San Francisco were telling me, hey, the first cases are popping up. And there's a new disease called that. And people weren't really following up. A lot of people weren't specifically going to, to, to take it seriously. And I was like, okay, let me follow this up. Let me see what's in there. And also, that being said, um, I, I always go on this blog called Bio um, Arvex. It's like a preprint biology um, 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 uh, uh, preprint biology um, uh, a data repo for all papers and stuff that's um, submitted. And mm-hmm. I started seeing all these different protein strains and people synthesizing specific sequencing all these different um, these RNA proteins. And I was like, huh, this is an actual novel virus that no one has seen. So I started to download programs like Fold It. Fold is this thing where you can find different proteins and fold the proteins um, and kind of see specifically if you can solve the kind of COVID protein and fold it in a certain way. Um, but it was pretty hard. I only got to like a certain level. <laughs> um, so I gave up on that and I was like, well, what can I do that's along technology and AI and leveraging my skill set specifically with my previous startup of robotics and AI um, as well as specifically understanding what problem is in the current market and capitalizing on that specifically in that context. So it's kind of birthed out of this 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 kind of um, this demand or this necessity of of, of, of potential um, scarcity to, to 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 make healthcare and make biology better in general. Excellent, that's that's, that's great. And I, I'm curious, can you tell us? Um, you, obviously, you're you're based in London at the moment. Um, but can you tell us where you're originally from and how you ended up in London? <laughs> and and yeah. I'm curious, like, how you find, like, what are the cultural differences in London that you find compared to, um, you know, your your origins? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So it's a little bit complex. Um, so actually, uh, I was born in Switzerland. <laughs> I grew up in, in Africa and then some time in London and most the majority of my time in the U.S. So I spent over eight, eight to nine years in the U.S., went to college there, worked there. <laughs> so on and so forth um and, and the interesting thing was um i've spent like over like <laughs> five plus years on each um it's kind of like a specifically uh interesting point for when people say where's your origin i tend to say everywhere like because i live in mm-hmm. africa i live in europe and i live in the u.s so originally i went to college university of texas um in, in arlington and dallas and mm-hmm. kind of that was where kind of a lot of my specifically upbringing and also a lot of my culture came from as well as my my, my dad being from ghana specifically in that context um, so it had a lot of um, specifically um, conservative um, Christian values and stuff like that. And I also kind of took that specifically into education and said, hey, like, let me try and improve myself and get better in terms of what I'm learning and go beyond that. 
But as soon as I got into college, I soon realized that it's all about who you know and it's the social network and it's not about being the best student. So I kind of played a game of let me see if I can capitalize on university and if I can have if I can use education as a tool to potentially rank up the ladder and find people in these networks where I can leverage my skill sets and add value to, to, to what's going on. So that's kind of what led me to where I am now. And the origin was kind of more of a, a multi, multifaceted, multicultural kind of approach from, from Ghana and from the U.S. and now being in London. Amazing, amazing. Um, and what led you to really get involved in the, in the tech space and startup space in London? Was it something that always had attracted you? Or what was the, the impetus there? Yeah, yeah. So to go back a little bit further, my, my yeah. history specifically was um, when I was 16, um, I went to school here in London. Um, I started a YouTube channel called Picture Perfect Media. Okay. And it was this kind of like YouTube video. Like It was a little bit crude, but like we were filming every upcoming singer, rapper, artist, anyone in the music scene that, that we can we thought was going to have potential. We filmed some big stars um, and we just had like over a million views, 2,000 subscribers. Um, so I kind of monetized that. I made enough money to kind of like use that for college and so on and so forth. And then when I had an opportunity, I took the, the SAT test, right? Um, and I scored pretty well. So I spent some time um, um, going to the US and studying there. Um, and then from there... Um, um, what happened was um, I decided, hey, like, I wanted to do something way beyond my, my capabilities. So I was interested in drones. And at that time, I was working in a research lab called Heraclea Lab. And Heraclea Lab was a lab that specifically focused on um, specifically focused on human-computer interaction. And that human-computer interaction was um, the ability to do tele-rehab, tele-robotics, all these different things where you could combine um, different, what's the word, different capabilities of computing and, and AI to, to, to improve um, um, healthcare. So I took my, my research, um, I took my research and I took my um, abilities and skill sets and said, let me create a startup and apply to AI and machine learning, um, mm-hmm. things I had, specifically skill sets I had, to the drone industry, which I was really interested in. So we started building all these toy drones, crashing it, flying it, eventually got an investor to invest 30k as a safe agreement in the u.s um and that's where kind of new robotics was birthed and that's where we kind of had my first start and it was like kept on raising more money and eventually raised a pre-seed and so on and so forth with different angels and, and, and then we ended up getting into where we are and then fast forward four years down the line i decided to move back to london because i had some family here and also the prop tech scene in london was was doing pretty well so mm-hmm. then we kind of relocate here and then we kind of highlighted it with a few big construction real estate firms and earlier this year, um, we were in the process of probably potentially selling the company and getting acquired. Um, so I kind of transitioned out um, in that context. I said, hey, you know what? Um, now that I've built this company for uh, three or four years, um, it's time for me to step back and try something else and do something new. So I kind of transitioned out. Um, and currently we're in the process of, 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 of um, uh, selling out new robotics in that context to, to, to potential uh, um, I can't really disclose who that is, but with that being said, um, the potential of exiting that, that, that project there and trying something new and something impactful. So that's kind of how we got to where we are. And yeah. the first year when I moved to London, I was trying to get connected in the tech scene. Um, I was like, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. Hmm. Um, and the interesting part that kind of drew me, drew me to the scene was um, Capital Enterprise was a really good resource. Um, also specifically, um, there were a few other tech events that I was signed up for. I literally went to meet up and I said, tech startup events. And I attended like a hundred of them. And I went to like so many networking events. Eventually I just hyper-networked myself into the space and hyper-networked myself into this, 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 this bubble, this tech bubble where there were so many opportunities for me to, to, to take 
my skill set that and what I'd built in the US into the UK tech scene. Um, and, 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 and that, that, that kind of was where it started. And through those things, people kept introducing me and saying, hey, this guy's working on this. I slowly got myself into the tech scene and to the point where now I'm somewhat <laughs> kind of a player in the tech scene to trying to build that out. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I still got a ways to go. So, so that's yeah. kind of how I got into the UK tech scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And and um, how have you found? So obviously you're you're an outgoing person. You're you're somewhat extroverted, I'm guessing. Um, how have you found that transition from from offline to what's now online? Um, in terms of yeah. those networking opportunities, how are you? How are you navigating that yourself? No, no, I agree. I agree. Um, so it's kind of interesting because typically you go to a networking room. Um, typically, I usually wear like a shirt and tie or something because, like, you know, I, I compensate for my hair. So, so, so I make some balance in some point to show some professionalism. Um, but, but that being said, um, uh, it's it's kind of like finding all these different events and these virtual events, and it's hard specifically to to make a valuable connection because everything's virtual. Mm. Um, and, and it's hard to do DD and with investors and all these people in that context, and it's hard to to, to go about these different things. Um, and the interesting thing is that specifically the ability or the, the opportunity to, to raise funding and do all these different things has changed. Um, and what worked really well for me as a tool was Clubhouse. Um, I got invites to Clubhouse. Oh, yeah. um, Clubhouse, for those who don't know, is a social um, app, a social networking app. And mm-hmm. the quality of people really, really because what happens is people have to refer you. They're still in a pre-beta phase. Um, and people have to refer you um, in a pre-beta phase. And, and the intriguing part about that is that the pre-beta phase is that there's so many limited people, so it's usually startup VCs, angels. So what I do is I host a uh, a talk called um, specifically um, UK, Nordics, and Europe VCs landscape every single Monday at 8 p.m. Um, and what we do is I facilitate, facilitate these kind of connections to, to to reach out to these guys. And I'm like, I'm like here, I'm here to share what you guys are talking about. Each week is specifically sector focused, and that kind of helps me tap into that network in the UK, Nordics, and VC. So by facilitating these kind of conversations and getting people connected. Inadvertently, people would say, "Hey, I love what you're doing. Let's talk more." And then start to foster those kind of warm connections, rather than me just reaching out to theirs. So that's kind of how I kind of <laughs> utilize networks and, and specifically uh, uh, tools out there for for kind of get more deal flow or specifically um, networking people in this post-COVID lockdown era. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I've heard a lot of club, uh, a lot about uh, Clubhouse, so it's interesting to get someone's perspective. Who's uh, you know obviously on the inside and uh, making moves there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, if I have an invite, I'll just send you. I'll send. I'll send one over to you. I'll ping you an invite, and then you should come on. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure our listeners will be you know tapping you up for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Yeah. So um, finally. Um, if anyone wants to uh, sort of follow up, get in touch, or find out more about Zoe and what you're working on, where's the best place for uh, for them to find you? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. There's there is a there is a great way. Specifically, we're on Twitter and Instagram. We just we just recently came out stealth mode because um, we are building out a prototype. Um, and now that we have a prototype, we're hoping to start doing um, preclinicals and all these different um, uh, specifically um, these different tests and, and, and trials in that context. Um, an intriguing part about that specifically is we have a website. It's called HTTPS or www.zoi.ai. Um, it's a simple domain to find us. And we have a wait list there. Um, and we're hoping to hopefully by the end of October, or hopefully in the next month or so, we can potentially um, get the full list of the benefits, features, um, specs of our product um, specifically. And, and, and what we're doing, interestingly enough, is that 
we're building a kiosk, which is a contactless kiosk that can pick up the vital signs of a user. Mm-hmm. Um, and these vital signs we do pick up, um, we can triage and screen people to determine specifically if a person is at high risk of a certain disease or infection. Um, so, for example, like one thing with COVID, right? So, with specifically temperature and heart rate and oxygen saturation, we can determine if a person has a viral infection or bacterial infection. And that's kind of intriguing because the more data you have and the more data points you have, you're able to go in and specifically say, oh, wow, this person's XYZ is high likely this, right? So, with some risk stratification and some basic antigen testing, you can start to pick up all these profiles and all these specifically scope that allow and enable people to, to, to kind of figure out if a person is more likely to have a disease. And that's huge for airports, offices and stuff, because as people go back to business, they want some low cost, efficient, affordable solution for screening COVID because no one's going to pay a hundred dollar test for testing if you have COVID every single week, because that could change. But if yeah. something as simple as a software or a sensor can just ping you and get all these vital signs and that's scalable. So how do you screen a triage for COVID at scale? And that's the problem we're solving. And we believe that problem is a multi-billion dollar problem. Um, and the unique way we're doing it is through big data and AI. Excellent. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, quite exciting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. No, definitely. No, definitely. I think, I think there's, a, there's a huge potential and there's a huge market upside. Even the remote patient monitoring market, which is a nascent market, is about, I think, 693 um, um, million. Which is still early, which is still in the early phases. Um, remote patient monitoring just really came about two or three years ago, because uh, typically they have to use, um, you have to go to a hospital and do this. And now you have all these portable oximeters and all these portable blood pressure machines and everything, where you can kind of from the comfort of your home get your health data. Um, even with Apple watches, kind of collect all this data. So, seeing the market grow with telemedicine and telehealth. Um, and, and the convergence of specifically typical kind of like interoperability as the, the, as the word that's being used in, in the healthcare industry is that um, a lot of people were, were afraid of technology and worried what data is going to get stolen. How do you make it secure? Now that people are getting familiar with technology, they're able to realize that, hey, you can have electronic health records and I, we can share our electronic health records from one hospice to another, another trust from another, another um, um, IHR, EHR um, to another and have this thing called federated learning whereby I could train my AI models and learn about this disease profile and share with other people in my network, healthcare network, um, to learn and improve client, uh, client and patient data in general. Yeah, 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 no, that's excellent. That's something that always frustrated me when I, when I used to live in the UK that there didn't seem to, like everything seemed to be managed by, you know, paper. And there was no, there was no, <laughs> so sharing of digital records between different institutions, like different medical, uh, you know, institutions. Whereas here, like, since I moved to New York, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, um, everyone's got this MyChart application and it's, yeah, it's just across the board. You can, yeah, yeah. So I just, since I've had this, it's been, yeah, it's changed so much. Just being able to like directly communicate with your doctor and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. taking that even further, I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the digitization of healthcare records and digitization of, of records in general is, is, is a big opportunity because no one wants to go take a physical record and go and give it to another healthcare provision because they want the interoperability because you want to have zero handoff, a smooth transition. So, you know, hey, this doctor already knows about my ailments. They already know about this. And I want to help do that because it saves you time and money. Also, yeah. another benefit that we realize is that with specifically remote vital science monitoring and triaging, we can, we can kind of potentially predict 
um, early ailments or chronic diseases in the context of specifically going in and saying, hey, the person might have, let's say, a COPD, a person might have cardiac arrest or microshivers and all these different contextual diseases and infections that you wouldn't pick up other places. So your insurance premiums drop drastically, specifically having that, that ability to, to, to kind of screen people earlier than later. Because if an insurance company is charging, let's say, I don't know, let's say $200 or $300 for just out-of-care pocket to visit an ER or, or the A&E, um, that's, that's going to cost you money. But if you can know there's a contact device that can go in and, and check if you have this disease, that's going to save you going from the ER and the A&E. So, so this is the this economic model slash um, subsidy of, of insurance premiums that there's a play here. That's an interesting model to look at. So we're still in the process of figuring out what's the best way to do that. Um, specifically, is it rebates? Is it subsidies? Is it reduction of premiums? How can we potentially take this Health, healthcare data and the screen triage model and enable and empower these hospitals or insurance agents, insurers specifically to, 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 to build a better, better healthcare system and a better interoperable system for, for patients and, and people alike. Awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great stuff, Cyril. So, um, just, I'm just conscientious of time. So, uh, didn't want to keep you, uh, too long, but, um, just wanted to say thanks for coming on the show and, um, uh yeah look forward to hearing more from you in the future no definitely yeah thanks for having me uh, and definitely looking forward to sharing our journey and if there's any more updates i'll definitely send you a link for more information and think about it awesome thanks you've been listening to the tech london show if you're interested in joining the community or even making an appearance on this show make sure you join our slack group over at techlondon.io till next time